Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans, such as myself, will hear that a movie is based on a true story. A few of them we already know, but most, well, we never go on to find out just what that true story is. So, in this series, we will explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. The 1993 movie, Fire in the Sky, begins with a group of men in a pickup truck racing through the woods down to a road when the truck overheats as they pull into a parking lot. They exit the truck and walk into what appears to be a bar-slash-pool hall that is filled with taxidermied animals. They take a seat at a table as you get the sense of the awkward silence between them. One of their friends and fellow logging co-workers has disappeared. Now, as we are introduced to these men, we already know that they are, quote, sticking to their story about what happened to their friend, Travis Walton. In this establishment, Mike, one of the men, goes up to the payphone to make a call to the police to report that Travis was missing. The group of guys are part of a logging crew who had been up near Turkey Spring working through a contract to clear out some brush. Now, as an investigator gets called to come to the establishment and he arrives, he is told about the other guys in the crew. There's a good church-going young man, a high school boy, a drifter, and so on. The investigator interviewed Mike, who seemed to be the leader of the pack. They begin to record the conversation, and then we get a flashback, back in time, where we see Travis riding a motorcycle on his way to visit his friend Mike as we are introduced to Mike as a family man with children. Now, Travis seems to be a very happy young man, carefree, with a big smile on his face. So, Travis arrives at Mike's house as Mike is working on his old truck, doing the best that he can to cheer his rather grumpy friend up. He shows him a drawing that he has done of a motorcycle business he wants them to open together. Mike is reluctant to discuss this dream because he and his wife are quite clearly having financial troubles. Travis then climbs up to the second floor of Mike's house to the window of his lady love, which is Mike's little sister. Then it kind of goes forward a bit and we see the men being picked up one by one to begin their work day. We get the sense that some of the men are not particularly friends, but they go on about their jobs. Travis and Mike are quite obviously best friends, and the men all finish up their workday around dusk. We are then taken back to the present time where the investigator is still asking questions about what the men saw. 
saying it looked like a red light and they believed that it might have been a forest fire or perhaps an unfortunate plane crash. As they were driving back down the mountain to go home and it was now getting dark outside. The radio in the truck can't seem to pick up a station all of a sudden. Travis asks Mike to pull over, and once the truck has stopped, Travis got right out, and he began walking toward this red light, looking up. Now the other men yelled and demanded that he come back to the truck. Travis continued forward as the light changed from an intense red to a blue. He stopped and looked up at what looks like a pulsing kind of honeycomb in the sky. Then they all begin to feel this vibration and Travis seems confused or unable to walk back to the truck. He is then struck by a white light that paralyzes him in his spot, then throws him several feet up and back in the air as he lands on his back. Now the other men, completely terrified of what they just saw, so then not too far down the road, Mike stops the truck and he states that they need to go back for Travis, that they just left him there. The other men get out of the truck, not wanting to go back, and Mike drives off himself. He tells the investigator that he searched the area and all around the woods trying to find Travis, but he couldn't find him anywhere. The investigator says, quote, you expect me to believe that a flying saucer came down and took your friend away to outer space? Unquote. It is agreed that there would be a search party first thing in the morning, though it's pretty clear the authorities are not buying their story. Five days later, Mike gets a phone call from someone claiming to be Travis. They find him at a gas station, naked, dehydrated, delirious, but alive they take him to a hospital. So what happens next? Well, for those of us that have seen the movie already know, and the rest of you, watch it. It's actually a pretty good movie. Now, this movie is based on a very true story of the real Travis Walton and what he claimed was his experience that night. So a little bit of background on Travis, right? He was born on April 23rd, 1957 in Arizona. In an interview with Hannibal TV, which is a channel on YouTube, he stated that from birth to around fifth grade, he lived in Phoenix, but then his family eventually made their way up to Snowflake, Arizona. Travis stated that he was very much into martial arts, but didn't really play sports in school, other than he did dabble in boxing. He was a self-proclaimed bit of a wild young man, racking up motorcycle accidents and bar fights. But he does also come across as pretty soft-hearted. And in his youth, he was never really much interested in the theory of aliens and whether or not they were visiting our planet. But he was quite interested in astronomy and actually took a class in college. But outside of that, he paid no attention to any of the conspiracy theories, according to him. Travis also studied and got his private pilot license prior to this incident. He began working in the logging industry that was a pretty easy job to come by in that area. And side note, there was a large Mormon population in that area and Travis stated that he was in fact raised in Mormonism. Now, this particular logging job was to 
as Travis put it, enhance the timber lumber production in the area by cutting the competing trees and favor the better trees. This encourages more rapid timber production and it is a very dangerous job. He described that each logging contract could last about a couple of years in this industry and they were about a year into a contract when Travis had his experience. So I thought the movie portrayed the unspoken tension between the men of that crew pretty well, but the real Travis says that they didn't get along very well at all and they certainly didn't hang out when they weren't working. One guy on the crew had actually, a few days prior to this incident, had gone to visit Travis's then-girlfriend to lure her away, and the men got into a physical fight. Travis won the fight, and that man later nearly dropped a tree on him. So, we get to the night of November 5th, 1975, which started out like any other day. The men were off to the job site to work all day. Once the sun began to set behind the mountains, it began to get cold, as Travis described it, getting as low as 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit at night that time of year. And then once the sun was set, they stopped for the day. The men packed up their gear in the back of Mike's old 1965 International truck, and then they all got in to leave. They began their drive home at 6.10 p.m., making their arrival time just before 7.30 that night back to their town. And as they made their way down the mountain, Travis wrote on his website, quote, Just then my eye was caught by a light coming through the trees on the right, a hundred yards ahead. I idly assumed that the glow was the sun going down in the west. Then it occurred to me that the sun had set half an hour ago. Curious. I thought it might be the light of some hunters camped there, headlights, maybe even a fire. Some of the guys must have caught sight of it too because the men on the right side of the truck had fallen silent. As we continued driving up the road toward the brightness, we passed in sight of it for an instant. We barely got a glimpse through the gnarled branches before we rolled past the opening in the trees. My eyes strained to make sense of the glimmering through the dense stand of trees blocking our vision. From my open window, I could see the yellowish brilliance washing across our path onto the road another 40 yards ahead. Intrigued, I was impatient to get past the intervening pines." Unquote. So Travis said that Mike, who was driving and not able to get a clear view, began asking what everyone was looking at. One of the other men said, quote, I don't know, but it looked like a crashed plane hanging in the air, unquote. There were shouts for Mike to stop the truck, so he did. Travis said he then threw open the door for a clearer view. What the men said they saw was some golden disc hovering silently about 20 feet above the ground. All were terrified and held still with anticipation. The glow that they saw was coming from the craft itself, and it lit up the surrounding forest area kind of strangely. Travis said that he estimated the craft to be around 15 to 20 feet in diameter, or around 4.5 to 6 meters, and he believed it to be about 10 feet or 3 meters thick. It looked like, quote, 
Two gigantic pie pans placed lip to lip with a small round bowl turned upside down on the top. Unquote. He said there didn't appear to be any discernible doors or hatches of any kind. No antenna, no motion, and zero sound. Travis then felt compelled to walk up underneath it to get a better look. He said, quote, I was afraid it would fly away and I would miss the chance of a lifetime to satisfy my curiosity about it. I hurriedly got out of the truck and started toward the hovering ship. Unquote. Now the men all chimed in, demanding that Travis get his ass back in the truck, and he did take a moment to look back at the men, but he felt that if he were in any kind of danger, he could just run away. So he continued walking toward the craft. He then positioned himself beneath the hovering craft into the golden glow and looked up at its unblemished metallic surface. But it was at this point that he picked up a very kind of faint sound coming from the craft. He compared it to a blend of mechanical sounds. The men continued to yell at Travis to come back to the truck. After a quick glance back at the men, he said he began to feel a, quote, thunderous swell in the volume of vibrations, unquote, coming from the craft. Travis then says that he crouched down just as a bright bluish green light shot out of the bottom of the craft. He said he saw and heard nothing but felt himself get hit with a non-visible force of very strong electricity and that he heard a sharp cracking or popping sound with it. He stated that when he experienced this intense kind of punch of electricity, his mind went black and he could not see hear, or feel anything after that. Now, the men who were still in the truck stated that they watched his body bend backwards with his arms and his legs extended, and the impact of whatever hit him lifted him up off the ground and threw him 10 or more feet backwards onto the ground. The men all stated that when Travis landed, he was limp, motionless and sprawled out on the ground with his arms and legs seeming that his limbs were kind of bent up the wrong way. They all believed him to be dead. Now completely, utterly to their core terrified, Mike and the men fled in the truck. Mike demanded to know if that craft was following them and yet no one would reply. Now, Mike raced away from the scene, his truck swerving this way and that as he began to realize if he wrecked or broke down, they'd all be stranded with whatever that was. He slowed down, stating out loud that he did not believe that the craft was following them. It was at that moment that the men all kind of snapped out of it and began talking over each other. Some wanted to immediately go back and try to find Travis. Others wanted no part of that. But Mike decided that he was going to go back and told all of the other men that if they wanted to stay there, to get out. But all remained, according to Travis's website. That's a little different from the movie. And when they got back to the spot, Travis was nowhere to be found. Mike felt absolutely horrible for driving away. So they all piled into the truck again and drove back to town knowing that they had to call the police. So then what happened to Travis? 
Well, according to him, he regained consciousness in an excruciating amount of pain, describing it as feeling that he was terribly burned inside and out. He said he was aware that he was lying on his back and he felt so overwhelmingly weak. He felt that if he moved at all, he would lose consciousness again. He said he was very thirsty and had this sort of metallic taste in his mouth. He reported that he finally forced himself to open his eyes and he knew there was a light above him. He had the sense that he was on a raised table of sorts. There was a part of him that was relieved at first because he thought that the men had taken him to a hospital, only he described the air as very, very hot and thick and humid. He remembers that he was sweating. He looked around and could make out the blurry image of doctors leaning over him with masks and caps, but they were wearing sort of orange prison jumpsuit type clothing. And then he said his eyes began to clear and he immediately knew that he was, in fact, not in a hospital. Travis said, quote, I looked at the vague but reassuring forms of the doctors around me. Abruptly, my vision cleared. The sudden horror of what I saw rocked me as I realized I was definitely not in a hospital. I was looking square into the face of a horrible creature with huge, luminous brown eyes the size of quarters. I looked frantically around me. There were three of them. Hysteria overcame me instantly. Unquote. Now, he said that he instinctively threw his arm out at two of them on his right, striking both beings, albeit lightly. He then did the best he could to stand up, still dangerously weak, looking terrified at the trio. Travis then says the beings began to walk toward him, and he began swinging on them with any instrument that he could get a hold of, screaming threats at them. He took the time to finally get a good look at them and he described them as being just under five foot tall, closer to four feet tall. And they had two arms, two legs, five fingers, and a face with eyes, nose, and a mouth. Quite humanoid. But their skin was eerily grayish white and spongy. He even recalled that they had no fingernails. They had no hair on their oversized bald heads either. So Travis said that though he was screaming at them, they never spoke a sound to him or even to each other. And then the three beings left the room as Travis began to scan for any other devices that he could use as a weapon, but there was nothing that he felt would be effective. So he exited the room through the door the beings had left and walked down a very, very narrow hallway. He said in the interview with the Hannibal TV YouTube channel that he thought the craft he was in was still hovering above the spot in the forest where he had gotten zapped, as it were. So he then entered a room with what looked like a high-backed seat with controls, a screen with buttons. He heard a noise. He looked behind him and stated that he saw another human male, roughly six foot two or so. He was wearing some kind of helmet as he entered the room, and Travis said his physique was very muscular and proportionate. He was wearing a bright blue sort of jumpsuit with no markings, no tools, and no weapons. 
He thought that he was saved, actually. So Travis walked up to the man, speaking hurriedly and asking questions, but the man never said a word. Instead, the man reportedly took Travis by the arm. He walked him rather quickly out of the room and down another hallway and into another room. At this time, Travis stated that he tried to talk to this man, but that the man never responded. Travis got the sense that they walked out of the craft that he had seen in the woods, which was now sort of parked inside of another much larger craft. The man escorted him through some doors and into a room with three other humans. There were two men and one woman, all wearing the blue uniforms, but these three didn't have helmets on. Travis commented on the fact that their bodies were perfectly athletic. Their skin was smooth and perfect. No blemishes, freckles, wrinkles, scars, nothing. He said they all looked like they were related in some way, possibly siblings or some kind of family. All of these supposed humans were able to get him to lie on a table and the woman put a sort of kind of mask over his face, although there were no tubes. And then he again lost consciousness. Now, Travis kind of felt like, as he was looking back on things, that these beings were actually trying to give him sort of medical intervention for the injuries that he sustained from that energy punch, if you will. But he became so combative that the beings sent a humanoid man to help because they felt he might not try to fight him. Regardless, the next thing Travis remembered was waking up regaining consciousness due to the absolute cold he felt through his clothes. Now, he was not naked. He was clothed. He looked up just as the light from the craft blinked out, and the craft itself shot straight up, creating a pretty strong wind, but it created no sound. At this point, he tried to stand up the best that he could, keep his balance and then he realized that he was on a familiar part of a highway and he began running back to the town. So he ran and ran until he found a payphone at a gas station and called the operator. Back then you could call the operator and didn't have any money and they would call the person on the other end and charge them a dime or whatever it was. He had the operator call his sister and brother-in-law's house and his brother-in-law answered. It was in the middle of the night. Travis felt like he had been missing for maybe a few hours. His brother-in-law and his brother drove, not really believing that it was Travis, to the gas station and the payphone. But once they saw him crumpled up in the payphone, they jumped out, grabbed him, and helped him walk to the truck. He said he babbled on and on about what he saw, thinking he had only been gone for around an hour and a half until his brothers told him that he had been missing for five days. Now, the operator happened to listen in on the phone call and called the sheriff's office who went to the phone booths and took fingerprints. The authorities did not believe the story that Mike and the crew had given them about what they saw. They suspected Travis had been murdered by one of the men on the crew, and they had all worked to cover it up. They had put together a pretty impressive search party consisting of people on horseback, helicopters, four-wheelers, no holds barred. 
the men on the logging group all agreed to take a polygraph and all passed except for the man who had nearly dropped a tree on Travis. However, once Travis was found, he retook it and passed it with flying colors. The man had no love for Travis, but he certainly had not murdered him. And I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise to hear that nobody really believed Travis's story. Outside of the men who had witnessed the craft, his mother, and Travis said later that the lead investigator and sheriff did believe his story more than he had let on. There had already been investigations, you see, regarding cattle mutilations that looked unnatural. So Travis submitted himself over for countless tests, blood and urine, all through the medical examiner's office. His brother had thought ahead enough to bag up the clothes that Travis had been wearing and seal it for possible evidence, though none was found. The authorities and the experts believed that Travis wholeheartedly believed his story, but that it was the outcome of him purposefully, accidentally taking psychotropic drugs. But there were no traces of drugs in his system. None. Then they said that he had a transitory psychosis, meaning experiencing brief but obvious psychosis. They believed that he hallucinated the whole thing and the searchers just didn't happen to find him. But all psychological tests came back normal. Travis had upper body x-rays, EKG and EEG, brainwave scans and so on. Everything came back normal. Now, the other men were all tested and all had the exact same experience. When usually people who hallucinate don't share the exact same hallucination at the same time. Some UFO researchers had gone and investigated the area where the craft had been and found it to have high levels of residual magnetism. There was later evidence of unusual growth rate in the trees within the immediate vicinity of the encounter. The trees nearest to where the craft had been produced wood fiber at 36 times the normal rate that it had in 85 years prior to that. And the sides of those trees that were facing the supposed craft were only growing that way. The side of the trees facing away didn't have the accelerated growth rate. Further investigations revealed that Travis's mother and his older brother were actually described as, quote, longtime students of UFOs, unquote. UFO researcher Philip Class believes Travis's story to be false, put together for financial gain, and said he found many inconsistencies in the story of the events each man told, although a lot of other sources say that their stories never changed. Some experts even argued the validity of the polygraph tests that were administered. So, cognitive psychologist Susan Clancy gave a statement that alien abduction reports only began after stories of aliens began appearing on TV and in movies, but we already know that that is false. We see depictions of this very thing happening even in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. But the overall reaction was what Travis called intrusive. People looking through Mike's house windows, people walking all in his mother's flower beds trying to see in the windows, tourists come knocking on his door at all times. 
1978, three years after the incident, Travis Walton wrote a book titled, quote, The Walton Experience, which would later be the basis for the Fire in the Sky movie, though Travis is the first to say that Hollywood took a great deal of creative license with what he said had actually happened. So unlike the movie, Travis said that there was no anti-gravity, no membranes he had on him or near him. He said the scene where Travis gets under the craft initially, they drug that out for a much longer time frame than what happened in real life. And he's talked about how he'd like to remake the movie to be more accurate to his experience. So diving into the comments of some of the interviews that I watched stated some very interesting theories. One that I actually hadn't thought of was that a viewer said the beings morphed into the human-like forms that Travis would be more trusting of and therefore he would calm down. Being that there were three beings in the initial room and then three human-like beings in the last room. But believe it or not, the overwhelming consensus is that most people believe him. I saw some police officers and ex-cops that stated his body language and so on indicated that he was telling the truth. Others stated they met him and that his story has never changed and they commend him for his overwhelming patience as he would not wish this life on anyone. And you know, it hasn't really escaped my attention that the men on the logging crew, for the most part, were most certainly not friends and one in particular hated Travis. And yet they have all stuck to their story all of these years when they could have easily called him out. But interestingly, in the early 2000s, Travis apparently appeared on a Fox game show called, quote, The Moment of Truth, where he was given a polygraph test and asked if he had been abducted by aliens, to which he answered, and the polygraph showed deception. So I don't really know where I stand with his story. Watching several interviews with him, reading articles about him, I feel like he truly believes what he thinks happened to him. And it's hard to pick apart the other men's stories when they passed polygraphs, not to mention some of the men didn't stand to gain any financial anything by lying for Travis because you know they lost that contract and they weren't particularly fond of him either. My two cents is that I think it is unwise to believe that we are the only conscious life forms in the universe. I think that our understanding of what defines something as having life is bound by what we know from our own perspective and the science that is ever evolving and discovering new things. Just when we think we have begun to understand and master the laws of physics and quantum mechanics, we find something new that blows some of our theories right back out of the water. But do I think life forms that are capable of the technology to visit us here on Earth, considering the absurd vastness of the universe and so on, are visiting us? I don't know. Most of me says no. But again, I'm always open because the only certainty in life is its uncertainty. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on the video below or you can DM me on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing. You can email me at SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com and as always... 
Guys, thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I truly appreciate that. And I also want to extend a thanks to my patrons. I didn't list out in the beginning, but you know who you are. Thank you guys so, so much. Have a great day.